2: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
2: And researcher. (laughs) Feeling (laughs) feeling a little groggy there?
1: I I might be, yeah. I'm just a little... It's late, you know. It's uh, getting to the end of the day. The sun has set despite our beautiful daylight savings time.
2: Well, imagine 120 days of darkness... Wasn't that <laughs> the name of a horror movie? Uh, I but, think so.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: But we do we do tend to record late, and often as soon as we finish, you're you always give me the standard, you know, we do our outro. Uh-huh. You say goodbye to the audience, then you yes. say goodbye to me, and then you yeah. go to bed.
1: I do. I, I jet off pretty quickly. And uh, usually because I have to put the the kids to bed. So that they, you know, being younger people, they need like something on ten to twelve hours of sleep to wake up okay.
2: In addition to children, mm-hmm. do you know who else spends a large amount of time in bed?
1: Uh, uh, couch potatoes.
2: Accurate, <laughs> but not help, but not pertinent to this particular Americans. Podcast.
1: No, oh, that's all. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Equally true, but not yeah, broad yeah. enough for the topic.
1: No, no, you're, you're, be, because this is, Josh, this is a medical podcast. I'm, I'm guessing that you're,
2: seguing, at least on occasion.
1: Yeah, on, on occasion. I'm <laughs> guessing you're, you're seguing some way into uh, people who are in medicine or getting medicine or one of those things.
2: Well, sick people. When you think oh. of hospital, it's not a bunch of folks laying, you know, lounging against the walls or <laughs> impatiently <laughs> tapping their feet in the hallways, or maybe it is depending on what kind of movies you're watching.
1: Sure, sure.
2: <laughs> but yeah. for the vast majority of hospitalized patients, they're in a bed.
1: Yeah, yeah. They. You. You usually, that's the dominant part of the room, right? When you walk in, it's the one that takes up the most space. These massive... Uh, technologically complicated, a lot of the times very safe hospital beds,
2: yes. Most of the time, people are not in, you know, your standard full or twin or king size. You know, it's not the same bed you have at home. It's a hospital bed. And what makes a bed a hospital bed? So, we're going to go hit the hay as we take (laughs) a look under the covers Uh of, of... all the sheet that goes into your hospital bed
1: and we'll have a pillow of a good time. No, that's that's not a thing.
2: Santosh? Yeah. It's bedtime. <laughs> I
1: just I wanted to I wanted to participate.
2: No, no, that that was the, Santosh. Yeah. It's it's bedtime.
1: Oh, Oh, not like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, it's time for beds. Yes, this, this is the beds time, like the beds time to shine. But Josh, surely, like many things that we've covered over and over in the myriad subjects here on Travel Medicine podcasts, you're not going to like throw me a curveball, right? Like hospital beds have always just been hospital beds, right? I mean, come on.
2: Santosh, what would this podcast be if I didn't take us back to ancient Egypt at least (laughs) once a month?
1: Dude, they did not have, they had like floor mats in Egypt. They slept on, uh, what do you call them? Like like a Japanese tatami mat, only however you say that in Egyptian.
2: All right, paint me a picture. When you imagine Cleopatra. Yes. How is she getting from place to place?
1: Oh, okay. I, I, I I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it's true, but like royalty would be on the the palanquins, right? Like they they'd be on a portable bed. Yeah. That would be,
2: yeah, four big
1: dudes carrying her around.
2: So let's talk about the palanquin, the hospital bed as we know it today, has its very first ancestors in the palanquins and the litters of you know ancient history. Essentially, these were contraptions that consisted of two long poles that held a piece of cloth in between them and acted as a hammock.
1: Oh, so this is the old school type of um, gurney, for instance, that you'd see before they had the spring out wheels and stuff that you could lift someone straight up off the ground and put them right in the back of an
2: ambulance. But the primary use of litters in the ancient world was not transportation of sick or immobile persons like modern hospital beds are, or even like the battlefield medicine that developed around the time of Napoleon. Instead, it was for transportation of individuals after they had been in the communal bath, so they would not have to touch anything and get filth on their just washed bodies.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So this was, it was a very privileged thing.
2: At first, isn't it
1: always (laughs) chair versions
2: of the litter Mm -hmm. were also a popular mode of transportation for early Egyptian and Roman royals as they began adding shade components. So now it's not just a hammock where you don't have to get filth on you, but you are shaded from the sun. Yeah. Uh,
1: And those, Josh, were the original sedans.
2: More like coupes. They only yeah. had two doors.
1: <laughs> no, no, no.
2: That's what they were called.
1: <laughs> they were they were called sedans.
2: I don't know. I feel like sedans should be roomier, yeah. but because because of their practicality, yeah. these sedans and litters became popular solutions for the transport of multiple people as well, you know, immobile patients as well as royalty. And because two sticks and a piece of cloth are something that a lot of folks could obtain, even right. if they couldn't parade it around became widely available. That's the ancient history of our medical bed. Uh, But let's jump ahead to the 1800s when things really start picking up. It's estimated that sometime between 1815, 1820, that beds with adjustable rails began to appear in Britain, using a mechanical crank to move the side rails up and down. This is kind of the beginning of some of the safety features that we see in beds. Although you'll be surprised to learn Santosh that bed rails on hospital beds are not nearly as common as they were, say, even 10 or 15 years ago and have become somewhat controversial, not controversial enough to completely disappear. They do have, they do have some of safety issues that folks are concerned about low risk, but not non-existent.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So I can kind of understand. So in pediatric beds, you have to have kind of a variety because we have everyone from tiny little babies that'll go into something called an isolate. So we've talked about this before, right, Josh, because we talked about actually setting up babies in a exhibition at the world's fair (laughs) showing off the very first isolettes um the little tiny preemie babies in there but that goes all the way from you know a a pre-toddler kind of an age where we have a crib with side rails that go all the way up so that the kid can't climb up and over and then you know (laughs) up to a a, you know adult-sized bed so I do know, though, that in some cases, if the rails on those for the little kids and, you know, they have to be spaced fairly close together because a child is tiny, right? You can't have them squeezing in between there. But that also means that there's a chance of like limbs getting caught. And so if they do fall or twist or something like that, you can still have an injury in the hospital um, because of a broken arm or a broken leg. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
2: Yes. Like the famous Sean Connery, Catherine Zeta-Jones movie that is referred to as entrapment. (gasps) Oh,
1: you made a Catherine Zeta-Jones reference. Bed entrapment. (laughs) No, that's a different movie. (laughs)
2: <laughs> the more dangerous one. <laughs> yes. Uh, so early 1800s, you begin to see mechanical crank rails on beds in Britain uh, being developed. So sort of the first change from just a hospital bed being the bed in your home with maybe you know plumper pillows. Uh, but around the 1870s, Andrew Westonson, a mattress company out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh registered a patent for a mattress frame that could be elevated. This is considered the earliest modern version of the hospital bed that we see today.
1: Okay. Okay. So this is the one with different heights. So if you needed to kind of load someone on there, you could lower it down. And then if you needed to raise them up for, for instance, if you needed to wheel that bed straight into the operating room, And then raise it up so that someone could operate while standing up, you could do that.
2: Right. And you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the operating room because the next inventor is really the one credited with the first official version of a hospital bed. And if we take, you know, a short jump up ahead from 1874 to around 1907, post operative patients in 1907 didn't really have the luxury of sitting upright in bed or draining their wounds correctly.
1: Oh, it was just flat. Oh, Yeah, that can be really bad in some cases.
2: And therefore, they run the risk of severe infection due to constant recline and a lack of movement, both yeah. things that delay wound healing.
1: Yeah, we're learning this more and more as time goes on. We used to be, I think even when we were in medical school, Josh, there was a a broad practice of, oh, you're supposed to rest and be really still after surgery, but we were learning very rapidly that, no, actually the human body heals much better when it's upright and moving to the best of the ability of the patient, given things like restrained movement from a fracture or pain.
2: So in order to improve the recovery of his post-surgical patients, Dr. Willis D. Gatch had revolutionized the hospital bed for post-operative care. He was a professor, physician, surgeon, dean, and inventor of the three-piece adjustable bed. The three-segment adjustable bed, often referred to as the gatch bed, which allows for the head and feet to be elevated, ideally not at the same time. (laughs) You don't want to (laughs) curl the person up into that V-shape.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... There are times where you want the person to be sitting up, but you want the legs to be a little bit elevated as well, as in the case of a person who has need for surgery, but congestive heart failure, for instance, so the blood doesn't pool at their ankles and feet.
2: So the gatch bed featured a frame with three movable sections that could be raised or lowered to help ease things such as bladder or bowel irritation, adjust to sitting positions for patients with heart failure uh, to prevent dyspnea, or even just for patients who are overweight and couldn't realistically distribute their needs along a flat medical bed.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is, and I'm guessing at this point, we're in 1907, you know, kind of thing. So this is all manual. So the beautiful ones that we have nowadays with the motors that actually moved our patient with the touch of a button, this is where someone had to physically lift parts of the body and then, you know, set it and latch it into place and that kind of thing, right? Correct. Oh, boy.
2: You know, everything is hand-operated, manually cranked, a lot of work being put in on all ends. And really, that was kind of the bee's knees through most of the early 1900s until around World War II when push-button hospital beds were invented by General Electric. All right. But one interesting feature about the design is it included a built-in toilet to eliminate the bedpan.
1: Oh, oh. (laughs) I mean,
2: see you are already imagining (laughs) some of the difficulties (laughs) with his bed design.
1: This seems like a good idea, but the problem is you would have to somehow make that toilet removable and very easily cleanable and sanitizable. Otherwise, like the next occupant of that bed is going to be very unhappy. (laughs) And me as an infection
2: control. Or even the current (laughs) occupant of the bed. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that's the thing about a bedpan that's so wonderful is that it is small and compact so that when your business is done, you can just slide it right out, clean the patient, clean the bedpan and replace it for whenever the next time you need it.
2: Now they do exist and it's been reinvented several times over the ages. The most current iteration comes with essentially a septic tank. So it does require a flush tank, a closet, a pipe. It um, oh. can be operated with a remote <sighs>
1: okay, damn
2: but it's not really a practical solution for mass hospitalization
1: This is what we don't always think about if there is a physician alone designing these types of things is you You can kind of see the practicality or what the patient can do with it to a certain extent, but you're not thinking about all of the logistics that go into setting up, preparing, cleaning the bed as patients are being admitted and discharged. So those type of things really need to come into account. It's not easy, Josh, Like coming up with a good plan that works well, practical and still cleanable, it's tough to do.
2: Now, as we talked about, one of the major reasons that you're in a hospital bed is you're immobile, you're injured. Mm-hmm. Really, the major advance that had been made was we could slightly raise your head and <laughs> slightly raise your feet. Yeah, Until absolutely. 1946, when hospital or medical bed advancement got an unlikely ally. And when I say unlikely, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and give you three guesses, assuming you haven't read ahead in the show notes.
1: Uh no i I haven't
2: but... if you had to think of a celebrity from around the nineteen forties okay. who might have contributed to the development of hospital beds okay, people who maybe had weird things about going outside and didn't ever clip their nails
1: oh 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 the the flying guy the the one who made the giant friggin plane, um oh damn it, what's his name? Uh, Leonardo Pizza place, uh, DiCaprio. Howard
2: Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, Leonardo DiCaprio played him. In 1946, Howard Hughes was in a plane accident. For those of you listening at home, Howard Hughes was basically Tony Stark (laughs) post-PTSD. So just, just imagine Howard Hughes as Tony Stark, but instead of a suit of armor... He built planes. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, he was an he engineer.
1: Had, yes, he he had a lot of those kind of things. Um, I guess it's fair to say a little bit like Elon Musk kind of thing.
2: Elon Musk of the uh, World War II era. Yeah,
1: weird, weird, eccentric, and you know, occasionally crazy type of thing. Anyway, just crashed.
2: <laughs> An XF-11 aircraft into three California homes near the local country club. Jeez. And had walked away from, you know, other plane accidents as billionaires do. But nothing like this one. Crushed collarbone, multiple cracked ribs, collapsed lung, third degree burns from trying to maneuver his way out of the wreckage. Dude, Uh, this was
1: in Culver City. This is just like down the street.
2: (laughs) In fact, at a nearby hospital, Hughes had a lung drained, multiple blood transfusions. But accustomed to bending the world to his will, he didn't like the bed he was in in the hospital. (laughs) So he called in some of his own engineers from Hughes Aircraft to redesign it. Now, let me tell you about the Howard Hughes custom designed hospital bed.
1: (laughs) Okay, what did they do? What did they do?
2: Six sections. 30 electric engines to move it. I mean, this was a bed with four-wheel drive. (laughs) Okay. The bed was equipped. wheel
1: drive from what you're telling us, yeah. Yeah.
2: The bed was equipped with hot and cold running water, push-button adjustments, and I think he left in an ambulance, an unnamed nurse told the press at the time, but I'd believe it if someone told me he flew home in that bed.
1: Oh, that's so uh, interesting. He okay, had okay.
2: levers to position the patient, so he could also reposition himself.
1: Okay, okay. Oh, okay, so he didn't have to call anybody. He could just, okay, gotcha. Right, you. famous so, recluse.
2: He would rather sure. just <laughs> Professor X his way in sure. and out of that bed.
1: Gotcha, uh, which is, by the way, nowadays very pedestrian, right? It's, it's very normal for people to be able to use that little bed remote um, to adjust their own bed.
2: So this was really the beginning of the idea of pimping out a hospital bed. Now, (laughs) this is not, it's not like his design that became incorporated. I've just just
1: had the vision. Yo, I'm next to the (laughs) Ziggs. Look at this man right here. (laughs) He just crashed his plane, broken ribs, collapsed lung. You can't be driving around in no simple hospital bed. You's about to get pimped.
2: (laughs) Hot and cold running water, flush toilets, an aquarium in your waterbed. Yeah. No. So even though nobody basically took his design and started adding all those things, the idea of more controllable, intelligent, functional beds really took off. So by the 1950s, more basic functions start to appear. And healthcare priorities really shifted from preventing mass death to providing comfort to the living, all those folks coming back from war. Mm -hmm. And so I
1: will add some things here, Josh, meaning that aside from the comfort, also ease of moving the patient into positions, just like you said before, that would help them heal, that would get them up and moving, and likewise prevent things like secondary complications and infection but would also help out so that a nurse or an orderly or something wouldn't wreck their back trying to pick up, you know, 50 patients a day.
2: The very first beds with full electric functioning for the general public became available in 1956. And that kind of enters us into an era where I'm going to talk real quickly about some of these, but there's three big stages in hospital bed development. Electric and semi-electric beds, starting from the 50s until the 90s. Okay. Mechatronic beds from the <laughs> 1990s until the early 2000s. We'll <laughs> talk about those later. They're okay. not transformers. Okay. Okay. Right. And the last 15 years have seen the rise of mechatronic intelligent beds. All right. <laughs> But let's go back to just the electric ones. Yeah,
1: I want to know what mechatronic is all about, but I will sit with bated breath.
2: The decades of the 60s and 70s were characterized by increased medical attention, such as an emphasis on physiatry, external to hospital care, the beginning of community and residential health services, as well as the creation or more mass distribution and availability of computers. Okay, okay. During these years, alternatives to the standard Gatch bed and Hughes bed appeared. And one of my favorites is Dr. Homer Stryker's Circoelectric bed. I even included a picture for you, Santosh. It looks like a, you know, a Cirque de Soleil (laughs) Soleil performance gone horribly wrong.
1: Dude, this... Yeah, I I know I've seen this on a main stage in Vegas, a hundred percent.
2: It's I, basically I... imagine those giant hamster balls or or hula hoops that the performers roll around in.
1: Yeah, yeah. If they if they you know where they splay themselves in the hoop and then you know they can tilt their body and actually roll around the stage. Uh, like a giant human wheel, it looks like those, if you took two of those and put them side by side and bars in the middle and then suspended the bed. From-
2: <laughs> yeah, and then put a hospital bed in it. And this could be used during <laughs> surgery. They could just kind of roll them back and forth to access the areas they needed. As well oh, as... Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, okay.
2: And of course, one of the first versions of this outside of the U.S. was built and commercialized in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was used for positioning easily getting the patient from a laying flat to a sitting or standing position without requiring them to use what may be perhaps atrophied or otherwise immobilized limbs. Okay. Uh, Gotcha. For voiding, it did have a trap door in the lower mattress for elimination purposes. Yes. (laughs) But the trap door is not even my favorite part. Uh, aside from a bed with a trapdoor, it also had a spring-loaded holder for a bedpan.
1: spring (laughs) Josh, what could go wrong?
2: A trapdoor swings open, and the spring (laughs) shoots forward with the bedpan at the ready. (laughs) Reload! So after the rapid electrical advancements of the 60s, in the 70s, Hospitals incorporated side rails with side control panels, some incorporated external control, but essentially side rails came up because people were falling out of these amazing electric beds oh, god and increased, increased injuries.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is where, you know, you'd get various injuries depending on the height, right? Because we also had the height adjustable... bed with the gatch bed. And you'd need that. You'd need that to actually care for your patient. But if you had no side rail and no restraint, right? Because that was the other way that you shouldn't be doing things, but it's, it's the only way we knew how back then to actually put you know, a strap across the patient, you know, so they wouldn't move. But, you know, if they rolled a little bit in their sleep, sometimes these were quite narrow, Josh. And depending on the height, you know, you could either, you know, break a bone or, you know, get like a major head bleed. It was scary.
2: So people were falling out of beds left and right.
1: And, 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 <laughs> and sometimes over the side yeah no over the back
2: yeah, yeah. um so people were falling out of the beds left and right mm-hmm. and as a result rails were incorporated of course we have talked about nowadays they are scaling back or looking to change the design of bed rails to limit limb entrapment with its seven different zones between the rails uh amidst each rail individually, and the gaps in between the end of the rail and the head and foot of the bed are all places where people can get caught, they have to be large enough to accommodate limbs, but too small to accommodate heads in a one size fits all kind of world. Yeah.
1: Which... <laughs> that, which is very, very difficult to do if you don't have some form of electronic adjustment. Yes. And why
2: sure. some hospitals are now looking to scale back from rail beds and again, go back with beds lower to the floor, figuring, yes. well, if they tumble out, they're not going that far down. <laughs> so as I said, there, this is, the beginning of a debate about what is the safest form of hospital bed, but it's been going on since at the very least the 1960s and seventies. Sure. Sure. As we move into the eighties, yes, the beds got synthesizers. (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs)
0: we,
2: we focused in and the eighties really focused more on the development of the mattresses used in hospital beds. So this is when you get therapeutic mattresses, Sealy, Serta, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay okay
2: um, mattresses with position detectors and mechanics oh,
1: okay. these are your smart beds that you were talking these about. are you your mechatronic
2: are like, beds that it. are that are beginning to come in because you have mechanics or pressures to weigh the patient while they're in bed you have position detectors so if they try and move and get out instead of having them strapped down instead of having guardrails up although you would still have that you're getting feedback from a nursing station or a telemetry station about the patient's movements within the bed or their sudden disappearance from the bed.
1: (laughs) Right. If the... You know, if you've weighed them and all of a sudden that weight goes to zero, there's a problem.
2: Other developments that took place in the 80s included devices to call the nurse as opposed to just nurse.
1: Yeah.
0: Nurse. <laughs> yeah.
1: Or and and this is something that we had to learn just with time and experience and everything else. There would oftentimes be, Josh, a button up on the wall. Right. And it would be there, you know, in order to call the nurse or if you needed to call a code, but it would be way out of reach of the actual patient who needed to use it.
2: So devices to call the nurse and permanent cardiovascular monitoring, or what we refer to nowadays as telemetry, became standard features in the 80s. Frankly, I'm a little surprised it was that late. I felt like it would have been earlier.
1: I, I thought it was earlier. I'm sure... What uh, may have needed to happen, though, Josh, was you did need the technology to kind of miniaturize enough where you could safely put that equipment in the room without it like overheating and bursting into flames um, when you're running a continuous device like that and not crush the patient, you know, (laughs) underneath the giant screen. Um, But the other part is it may have been there, but not necessarily integrated like with
2: the bed. Oh well, okay. I suppose that's true. Yeah,
1: but so like not, not automatically hung up. Like you'd have to wheel it in or something.
2: Um, so the eighties, as we said, focused on mattresses such as adjustable or inflatable ones that could change the amount. So actually, closest to the the sleep number kind of mattresses. Oh yeah, yeah, is what Absolutely. was developed in the eighties. Um, uh, in the not 90- a sponsor. Not a sponsor. Nobody sponsors us yet. (laughs) But if you'd like to, uh, in the 90s, we get a little bit more grudge. Beds with more advanced functionality are developed. Mechatronic beds become a reality. You know, beds that can transform. No, they're beds that have more things like mechanical sensors. They have pressure that alternately, they still use electric motors, but the bed periodically lifts and or provides pressure to different parts of the body to avoid developing pressure ulcers. You have mechanical weights built in mm-hmm. combined with software systems. That's where you get mechanical electron or mechanical. Elec- I'm not there. Mark. that's where you get mechatronic intelligent beds.
1: Okay. Very, very cool.
2: Which would so- also be a fantastic band's name. <laughs> Imagine shouting to like a crowded stadium: "Hello, Manchester! We are mechatronic intelligent beds.
1: Why are they always British?
2: That's how all bands are announced in my head.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. I thought I thought you could do it. At, you know, you could do it at Burning Man with a you know that calf that California accent.
2: So mechatronic beds, mechatronic intelligent beds." Are now kind of developing into smart beds.
1: Yeah. And Josh, by the way, I got to say, I absolutely love some of these. Now, it does depend, unfortunately, on the hospital that you go to and what it can afford and what it can't afford. There are some of these where they've got the massagey things in them, just like you talked about, but they're so massagey that they can actually turn the patient for you so instead of you having to turn the patient over for bed sores and that kind of a thing it can actually like deflate one side and inflate the other and gently turn a person all the
2: way over it's crazy can you imagine being rotated on your bed like a rotisserie uh,
1: <laughs> It's just like a, yeah yeah like oh or it's more like one of those you know those hot dog rollers that you see at your local 7-eleven it's like that but like under the soft of the mattress and everything
2: i'm just picturing all my patients (laughs) slowly rolling like the 7-eleven hot dogs
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah
2: (laughs) um But yeah, so these these new mechatronic intelligence smart beds are capable of sensing the patient's position and turning them, alerting clinicians regarding issues, even transmitting the data to the hospital's electronic medical record. Stryker Corporation, who made some of their early money, as you may recall, off that weird Cirque du Soleil bed, (laughs) offers a technology called iBed Awareness on its critical care beds and it will monitor local status and alert clinicians if preset parameters are compromised which is just what most physicians want now not only can the nurses and text page you so can the furniture
1: <laughs> absolutely and it, it has a voice a little bit like uh Alexa or hey Google or one of those kind of things but wouldn't it be even better if it got responsive but it also didn't understand you the way that sometimes Alexa doesn't understand you. (laughs) Like, uh, all right, uh, uh, bed, lower the patient by 12 inches. I'm sorry, did you say engage catapult mode? You have a catapult mode? Okay, we'll engage catapult mode. (laughs) Josh, you're right. The computers are going to kill us all.
2: I know. (laughs) this Uh, is what i've been saying
1: yeah (laughs) i hate having to admit this but yeah
2: so a study was done a pretty extensive one a survey on electric medical beds from the years 2000 up to 2016 looking at three different topics trends and changes found in beds over this period market reach and features of smart beds as well as an impact on the experience or capabilities of the medical bed in healthcare environments such as the hospital, the rehabilitation center, or the home.
1: Or long-term skilled nursing facility, as we sometimes call it.
2: So some of the special features, let me let me talk about standout features of the current medical beds. So most hospital beds have these things included now. Bed exit alarms, as in when somebody tries to get out of bed, whether or not they have permission, it sends off a notification at the nursing station, obstacle detection when something is within, you know, like those detectors on your car that tell you when you're trying to change lanes, if a car is pulling up alongside. Several of the smart beds have obstacle detection that can see if IV poles or other healthcare staff are at the bedside. Advanced motion options to you know, change. Most beds are still three segments. They don't all go up to six like Howard Hughes, but a few, (laughs) but there are a few four and even one or two, five segment beds.
1: Yeah. And it really, aside from what I said before about cost and what can be afforded by the, the people who are actually running the facility and everything, there is also Josh, what you need for the patient population that you have. Meaning, do we need all this craziness and everything? Or is it better to actually just kind of focus in? Well, for
2: home models, there are preset positions like cardiac chair and automatic CPR. And 95% have dedicated accessories like cup holders, moon roofs. I'm sorry, specialty mattresses, (laughs) IV holders, and options for a fifth caster.
1: (laughs) You were going into car salesman mode for a second there weren't you?
2: I mean, that's what these beds really turn into and <laughs> for folks who do require hospital beds at home, they can cost anywhere from as low as 600 mm-hmm. all the way up to 10,000.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just to give people kind of an equivalent, we do have our baby isolettes and everything who have a host of different things that it can do. The the shape doesn't really change because you actually just need a flat surface for babies. You can move them any which way you need to, but they have adjustable temperature and how you can lift and lower the lid on top of it and pull down the sides and all of the temperature and telemetry monitoring in there. Likewise, same kind of $10,000 bed, but shrunk down for a baby.
2: Yeah. So we'll see. Mechatronics combines mechanics, electronics, informatics, communications, engineering. It's I really hadn't thought how much work the hospital bed actually does in this setting. Uh, now that's it for this particular piece of medical furniture, but As I was looking for other medical conditions associated with beds, I was expecting to come across things mostly like studies on pressure sores or positions for, you know, what's the best angle to relieve dyspnea from heart failure or fluid in the lungs. And I found a lot of that. That's kind of my bread and butter. But then I came across a condition which I thought was made up. And then you informed me is real and we're talking about <laughs> tetical grade bedhead uncombable hair syndrome
1: <laughs> yeah yeah this this came around and i do have to give some wonderful credit uh because i have an amazing uh, genetics professor at our center here at cedar sinai um you know i talked it over with him and then i believe this article also made its rounds on some of the shows like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me over on NPR. Yeah, I, I talked to you about medical... Well, not just bedhead, but just like out-of-control hair.
2: Uncomable hair syndrome <laughs> is a real... Yes. Honest-to-goodness, but rare genetic disorder.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and it's benign. And, uh, you know, it, it actually this one gene, you know, if you have that particular quote unquote disorder is you get this crazy kinky hair that if you try to brush it, the hairs are brittle and they'll break. And very interestingly, Josh, as the person goes through their changes from, you know, childhood to adolescence to adulthood, all of those symptoms disappear. So it's actually only Childhood uncombable hair
2: syndrome. <laughs> it's genetic bedhead that yep. you grow out of. But let's talk about why it's uncombable. Because I mean, as fun as it is to say, there is some some base behind this. So yeah. when our hair grows, it starts with hair follicles, and in a healthy hair follicle, the proteins that create our hair build the shaft cylindrically. So basically, hair grows in a round shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How uh, round it?
1: Now they they. If you look real close, right, it's not one big smooth cylinder. It kind of grows. um, Oh, Josh, you know how uh, some people have like their at-home lightsabers that kind of telescope out? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They kind of look like that, the, the telescoping parts stacking on top of each other. Until it gets narrow and narrow to the tip,
2: it could be anywhere from perfect circle to jack in the box curly fry. But yes. the degree <laughs> of roundness actually dictates what your hair looks like when it grows out. The closer it is to a perfect circle, the straighter the hair grows with that natural spiral cycle. Uh, a natural spiral cycle gives you curls, and then the melanin in our skin provides hair color. But for people with uncombable hair syndrome, <laughs> yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Melanin has no influence over its coloration. So all of them come out with that silvery, blonde, whitish hair. And the follicle doesn't build hair in a cylindrical form. It just builds it straight out, making it brittle. So it actually has a triangular or kidney-shaped fabrication. So the hair looks like spun glass beneath a microscope.
1: Yeah, it doesn't... If you're trying to identify it as human hair, like if you're doing forensic medicine or something like that, You'll just be like, oh, this isn't human hair. I I don't know what this is, but this is, you know, it it may even look fake, Josh, like it came from a wig or something like that.
2: Yeah. And some of the reason we even found out about this, I don't know how it became known in more pediatrics, but there have been reports of conditions similar to uncombable hair syndrome in cancer patients who are receiving treatment and kidney transplant recipients, because again, it has that same, the same things that make your hair fall out in cancer are the ones affecting the hair follicles and their ability to grow in their prescribed positions and absorb melanin. And noting that some children who didn't have cancer mm-hmm. had this similar condition to people on immunosuppressant medication is what kind of led to its discovery.
1: Cool. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I I really actually love the fact that, you know, you just outgrow it after some time. <laughs> Um and uh, Josh, it's near and dear to my heart because as you know, my hair grows out rather than down. <laughs> so with uncombable hair syndrome, they do have the coolest looking fro-y, frizzy hair that you've ever seen. Their their hair grows straight the hell out.
2: Oh, I remember your fro.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll correct one thing. I'll correct one thing. So they are all cross you know, they're linked up in weird ways and they grow straight out and you can't really comb it down. It's actually not super, super brittle the way that it would be with uh, like a cancer patient. So the the hair shafts themselves, the, the actual individual hairs are quite strong.
2: So that's it for this week. We will be... Back to oh, next.
1: actually, Josh, can I insert one crazy hospital-type bed story? You kind of remember to do these earlier, man. I yeah. know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I looked this up. Um, I, I had thought about this because it is one of the fascinating figures in history. I don't think we'll ever do it because he's an engineering figure and not a uh, biomedical figure of any kind. But Thomas Midley, Midgley Jr., Uh, born 1889 to 1944. Josh, this poor guy was an engineer and he just wanted to help people out. But he was the guy who, in trying to reduce engine knocking, put lead in gasoline. (laughs) And then when he realized that was a bad thing and he got out of the General Motors kind of a group, he moved on to refrigeration. And he put CFCs. (laughs) He put CFCs in. Like this was the same guy. He did both things. At the very end of his life, near the end of his life, he caught polio. Okay. And being an engineer, he wanted to likewise help himself out and come up with a solution. well, you know, he had flaccid paralysis. He couldn't move very well, especially his legs. So he made a beautiful bed, which had a bunch of pulley systems, you know, where you could move your legs around and and kind of get around if you needed to, even though you were weak. What do you think happened, Josh?
2: I don't know. What? that bed, him?
1: Ki- that bed killed him.
2: <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right.
1: So... He died entangled in there of strangulation. (laughs) So this poor tragic figure went from putting lead in petrol to CFCs to choking himself with his own bed. Hell of an inventor.
2: So that's it for this week. We'll be back next time. Uh, with some more on medical furniture, as well as the continuation of our series on physiatry with guest doctor and fellow podcast host, Avinash Shit. What's his last name? Ram Chandani. We'll be back next time with a continuing series on medical furniture and our series on physiatry with guest host and fellow podcaster, Dr. Avinash Ramchandani. And as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You may have noticed that uh, the episodes have been showing up fast and furious and out of order after a long delay. There were some technical (laughs) difficulties moving the feed that should all be fixed now. So we're back, baby. (laughs) Send us your comments, your questions, your concerns, your thoughts, your random tweets, anything you like. To our new website, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, get your shot, be safe, find a country that is open, and when you've done all those things, happy travels.
0: Bye, guys.